Amen. Well, this is probably the first time in years you've not seen me up here without a laptop, a PowerPoint, and all the fancy gadgets. I'm taking on a kind of different, I was going to say quest, but that sounds really nerdy, but I guess I'm a nerd, so I am taking on a new quest in, in, a, in wanting to kind of get back to preaching and whatnot. Today, I'm probably going to be giving a lot of intro on a new book, so it's going to be less preachy, but Nonetheless, this is the ultimate aim. Before I go into which book I'm diving into, I want to read a couple quotes and see if you can guess. This is still a Sunday school, so I'm still going to kind of ask questions, and you can feel free to interrupt, you know, whatever. All right, quote. This book teaches the most exalted piety and the purest morality. It tends only to refine and exalt the nature of man, to elevate the soul of God, and inspire it with the admiration and love of his character, to curb the passions purify the affections, and excite to the cultivation of whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. It has guided the saints in doubt and difficulty. It has nerved him from self-denial and suffering. It has imparted support and comfort to him in the hour of death. The book has accordingly been highly appreciated by the best of men in every age, and they have labored to find expression in which to set forth its excellencies. Athanasius, as we've studied church history, some of these names will be familiar, that fourth century church father expressed it like this. He says that it was the epitome of the whole scriptures. Basil, another fourth century church father, said it was a compendium of all theology. The 16th century German monk Martin Luther, instigator of the Reformation, called it a little Bible. And his right-handed successor, Melanchthon, called it the most excellent work extant in the world. And the Swiss reformer, John Calvin, when he comes to his commentaries, he has several paragraphs, and he's just kind of like, I don't know what to say about this book. There's so much I want to say, and I fear if I say anything, it's just going to fall short, but I should say something, so here we go. And then he gives you like 10 paragraphs. Just one little section I want to read. He says that, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Can anyone guess what book we're talking about at this point? My wife can't guess because she, she knows. She's, she's been there in the room. Uh, it is the Psalms. So we're talking about the book of Psalms. It is obviously a beloved book. Everyone is familiar with this book in one way or the other. And yet there are so many depths to it that we can plumb I do ultimately aim, I want to preach through the Psalter as a whole, all 150 Psalms. I may take several in groups. I may, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do yet, but the more I get into it, the more I'm, I'm really excited about it. If you guys know me, and everyone here knows me, you know how much I love music. You know, it was a big goal of mine to introduce our church to psalm singing even. And I kind of slowly did that by, okay, we've fallen in love with hymns, well, look, this Psalter, this one matches the melody of Amazing Grace. You can sing Psalm 3 to Amazing Grace or Psalm 46. We can sing that to A Mighty Fortress. You know, we already know the tunes. Let's just now sing God's words to these tunes. So it's a little less intimidating than coming, I guess, kind of like, you know, we have now with just like unfamiliar tunes and things like that. Although we've been learning them and getting better at them. And uh, I really love to worship with you all, especially in psalm singing. Anyways, the book of Psalms today, I'll be laying some groundwork and aiming to ultimately preach through it. We'll be looking at really the title of it, the authorship, 
all that kind of boring introduction stuff, although I think there's a lot of really great nuggets in it. So that's why we really don't get beyond this. And if time allows, and I'm going to try to make time allow, we will get to some practical helps. So first, let's look at the name of the book. Scripture itself references the book of Psalms as the book of Psalms, not just Psalms. In Luke 20, 42, Jesus debating the Pharisees, he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and he quotes the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemy my footstool. And then totally confuddles the Pharisees by saying, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Then you find later in Acts 1, when Peter is arguing that Judas should be replaced by another apostle, it says in Acts 1.20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let another take his office, and on it goes. That word psalm in Greek literally just means song, and even the Hebrew, when it's translated from that, it, it, it is the title of many psalms. You'll see the song of Asaph, the song of David, the song of... So at its most basic level, it means song. Uh, when you really get down to some of the literal meaning and where it comes from, it ultimately means to make a sound, either by the plucking of a string or the blowing of a shofar or the crashing of a cymbal, whatever it is. The Hebrew name for the book is literally praises, and this really gets down to what this book is all about. It is praises to God. Ultimately, first and foremost, they are a collection of praise songs to be given to God in corporate worship. So the book of Psalms is a collection of individual psalms or songs. This is why some will just call it a psalter as it contains psalms. It is a collection of psalms. It's an anthology, if you will. It collects them all together. At church, what we use is the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. This is a collection of the psalms in the psalter, and then we have a collection of hymnals. This is really kind of two books in one. And our psalter section does aim to... Um, well, I'll get into that more. I, as I go through this, I, I want, since we sing the psalms, since we sing from this hymnal, I want what we learn from the scriptures also to come with some practical helps on helping us better use our psalter. Um, that may sound surprising. We can better use it? I think we can. I know, I know for myself, I found encouragement in some things I I've been studying out the last couple months when I was aiming to come to this. So, uh, With that, um, so all of these are designed for corporate worship. Saints throughout the ages, as we well know, have used these for personal devotions. They're excellent. They're great. Like, like Calvin says, they go through the litany of all the human emotions. There's not one emotion, really, that we can think of that man is pressed with or vexed with that the psalmist doesn't interact with. And I think one reason, at least in my own heart, that I find it so comforting is sometimes I've had thoughts about God or I have these emotions and I'm, I'm unsure, like, can a Christian think this? And then you read a psalm and you're like, oh, this is in the Bible. This is Holy Scripture. Wow. And there is a way that we can bring these, like one of them is even titled a complaint to God. We can bring, there's a holy way, a reverential way, we can bring complaints to God. Lastly, they are also seemingly self-contained, so they're very easy to digest. And I say seemingly self-contained because I do hope to get into the structure and show how some of these are arranged in certain ways and connected as well. But because of how self-contained they are, you know, they're, they're really easy for us to use them as devotional material. I kind of, as I was making coffee yesterday, making some eggs, I just turned on my ESV app, hit play, starting with Psalm 1, and by the time my coffee was ready and my eggs were ready, I had gone through 16 psalms. And there was a lot of great stuff I, I drew from that. And um, 
Again, it's, it's not an excuse for short devotions, but it does, and I think it leaves us with no excuse to have no devotions. It's very easy, it's very accessible to come to, and yet it is scripture, there's so much more we can plumb in it. There's one reason it's helpful to even preach through it. So just as an encouragement, you know, if you have gotten off, I know a lot of us do some kind of yearly Bible reading or, you know, our Bible reading devotional time will kind of wax and wane. You know, if you're kind of like, ah, going back to those 10 chapters I try to do a day, it's a lot, you know, at least, at least jump into the Psalms, you know, very accessible again, lots of great little devotionals. You can read along with Spurgeon, read along with Martin Luther, the Psalms, a lot of great devotional material, all free out there. So don't even got to spend a penny. It's my kind of devotion. (laughs) All right. So what does this book contain? Well, as I said, there are 150 psalms or songs in its collection. The oldest dates back to Moses around the time of the Exodus, you know, circa 1445 B.C., the probable date of the Exodus, all the way to 444 B.C., when the work of Jerusalem's walls were completed after their Babylonian exile. So this is a 1,000-year period. And then in the Psalms, you have it even going through other history, and then you have prophecies about the far future, even the world to come. So it, you know, Luther's saying this is a little miniature Bible. You know, I, I, I agree with that. The more and more you study it, the more you're kind of like, yeah, I can see that. So even though the, the period it was written in was a 1,000-year period, the vast majority of the Psalms were written around 1,000 B.C., which were written by the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, who sometimes the, the, the Psalms are just called the Psalms of David. Sometimes they're all accredited to him, though he didn't write every single one. But this does bring us to authorship, which will lead us to questions of interpretation. How do we go about interpreting the Psalms? It's, it's an important question we ask, especially because it's we know we should interpret books according to their genre. Well, this is poetry. How, how should we treat that versus how we treat you know, history like Pastor Ryan's going through with Exodus and things like that? As far as authorship, of the 150 Psalms, at least 75 are ascribed to David. 12 were composed by the musical director and seer or prophet Asaph. A group of the sons of Korah are attributed, at least 10 of them are attributed to them, Solomon two, Moses one. Heman and Ethan won as well. And three of those names are some of the, le- the clan leaders of the Levites, which is going to become important for our purposes of interpretation on this. So this leaves around 50 psalms that are anonymous. All 150, ultimately, though, we would say, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, Now, in a handful of commentaries, or if you have a study Bible, you know, when you come to a new book, it gives you all this information, the dates, the authors, the themes, the outline, generally in a psalm outline, people kind of say, we're not really sure. Um, at the very least, we know the psalms are broken up into five sections, five books. Even in, in um, uh, historically, Jews have viewed, have viewed like, I think it's the, the Mishra, I think I'm saying that wrong, but, but their, their commentary on the Old Testament, they're saying that, well, as, as Moses gave us five books, so David gave us his five books in the psalms. When you look at the Psalms, generally, it's broken up into five books. There is a structure there, uh, overarching, which I think is related to the Davidic covenant. And as we we get more and more into that, we'll dig into that. But at this point, I found it really interesting. Matthew Henry brings out this sentence where he's just, he kind of, you know, he's giving all this information about the author and all this background stuff. And then he's like, here's where I see Christ, like talking about the authorship. And I was was really taken aback because... He's a well-respected commentator, probably one of the most famous in the world. 
um, good Puritan man. You know, he's one of those guys that, you know, he's, a, he's a Puritan. So like it was said of John Bunyan, you know, you'd poke him and he'd bleed bebleen. Like these guys are so full of scripture. They're so filled with the word of Christ. Instead of ble- bleeding blood, they literally bled scripture, they would say. Um, so it's interesting because at this part, he just throws out all this, all this doctrine and theology, doesn't, you know, quote any scriptures, just kind of moves on to the next paragraph. Like, all right, here's some more background info about the Psalms. Here's the quote that he says that caught my interest, and I couldn't stop wondering about it. He says, quote, again, just regarding the authors of the Psalms, but the far greater part of them were certainly penned by David himself, whose genius lay towards poetry and music, and who was raised up, qualified, and animated for the establishing of the ordinance of singing psalms in the church of God, as Moses and Aaron were in their day, for setting up the ordinance of the sacrifices. Theirs is superseded, but his remains, and will be to the end of time, when it shall be swallowed up in the song of eternity. Herein David was a type of Christ, who descended from him, not from Moses, because he came to take away sacrifices. And then in parentheses, he says, the family of Moses, by the way, was soon lost and extinct, right? The records are just kind of gone. It's not, doesn't, not really important who the sons of Moses is. It's very important who the son of David is. Um, but Moses, eh, you know, his way, it went by the wayside. But to establish and perpetuate joy and praise, for of the family of David in Christ, there shall be no end. And I found that quote, I mean, that was just a lot. I was like, wow. But again, kind of like Pastor Ryan has said, sometimes when, when these very learned men, these men that bleed, blableen, say things like this, it's very humbling to just be like, well, they probably know more than me. Uh, I'm not going to question them. Let, let, me, let me question them in a godly way, see where they're getting this from, see if there's any scriptures backing it up. And so I did that. So again, just kind of parsing this, this, this final sentence of him regarding authors. He says, David himself, whose genius lay towards poetry and music, you know, our kids in Sunday school learn that. They know David's the sweet psalmist of Israel. They will remember stories of David's beautiful playing on the harp, you know, calming down wicked kings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That, that's pretty basic. And then he says, David was raised up, qualified, and animated. What, you know, what does he mean there? I think what Matthew Henry is getting at is when it comes to the final words of David, right before he, his final words really wind up just being a psalm. Uh, in 2 Samuel 23, 2, he says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Raised up, qualified, and animated for the establishing of the ordinance of singing psalms in the church of God. Now, when he's talking there about the church of God, he just means the congregation of Israel. He's just talking about the Israelites, Old Testament Israel. This isn't common language we use nowadays. The reformers use this a plethora of times. It's even used in the New Testament like that. That's where they get the verbiage from. In Acts 7, when Stephen is getting stoned, in verse 38, he refers to the Israelites as the ecclesia in the wilderness. The congregation in the wilderness is usually how it's translated. That's the exact same word of how we translate church. We say the ecclesia of Christ. We're talking about the church of Christ, the ecclesia of God, the church of God. So when he says the, the church in the Old Testament, he's talking about the Israelites. That is one way to kind of, kind of see our, our unity as well. But again, technically speaking, there is a formal start to the church and the spirits following acts and all those kinds of things. But so don't get tripped up on that wording. It's very common in reform times especially. Um, now what about making psalm singing an ordinance? 
Well, David wrote Psalms for bringing up the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and before I even go there, ordinance is basically just saying, you know, laws, instructions on what you are to do, what you are supposed to do. So there is an ordinance about the sacrifices. You know, it's Moses and Aaron who brought those. There are ordinances in the New Testament. You know, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are things the Lord ordained for us to do. And here, Matthew Henry is saying that David was animated, was ordained, if you will, to bring about psalm singing, even in the Old Testament. So I started looking, First Chronicles 15, 16. This is when David writes a psalm, bringing up for the, when, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought, brought back and brought up. And it says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Now, this was not one of the ministries that the Levites were supposed to do beforehand. You know, Pastor Ryan has been going through a lot of the ministries the Levites are supposed to do, the labor and doing this thing and dying that thing and slaughtering that animal. Um, music was not one of their duties. You know, this wasn't the first time music, you know, God told someone to write a song. We see that even with Moses. But as far as, as, as an institution, as part of ordained worship, this is the very first time we see it. In fact, as one commentator puts it, he writes, this marks a turning point in the history of Israel's worship. The Levites are appointed under David to a new ministry of music and praise, which will be conducted in the presence of the ark. And then going on further, 1 Chronicles 3, 31 through 32, tells us about this appointment, this ordination, if you will, of this, this ordinance. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tents of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. And even with Solomon, we see that this, this ordination of psalm singing continues on. The rest of the chapter in First Chronicles 6 there gives genealogical data about the Levites and the appointed leaders. Some of them are, you know, Heman, that's a name we mentioned earlier from the Kohathites, Asav from the Gershomites, and Ethan from the Merorites. Each line gets traced back to Levi, and at least one of those, or each of those leaders, those Levitical clan leaders, is the author of at least one psalm in the book of Psalms. Asav, at least 12. So this command to instill this new ordinance was ultimately under divine direction. So even though David is saying, the Lord has put his words on my mouth to, to speak it. You know, an ordinance like this, we really need a direct command from God. That's why we as Baptists only believe, you know, the ordinances that we do in our church are baptism and the Lord's Supper in, in the sense of sacraments and whatnot, because they were ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ himself for the church. So in, yeah, Second, Second Chronicles 29, 25, we see this is a command ultimately from the Lord. It reads, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through the prophets. So the commandment is from the Lord, given through the prophets. Very clear. That's how that works. Back to Matthew Henry's quote. Let's keep going through that, because I think it's going to bring out some other nice nuggets as we prepare to dive into the preaching of the Psalms. So he says... David himself, whose genius lay towards poetry and music, and who was raised up, qualified, and animated for the establishing of the ordinance of singing psalms in the church of God, 
as Moses and Aaron were in their day, for the setting of the ordinance of sacrifice, theirs is superseded. That is, Moses's and Aaron's, right? Ultimately, sacrifices are superseded. But psalm singing remains, and it will till the end of time when it shall be swallowed up in the songs of eternity. The ordinances of Moses and Aaron are superseded by what, by whom, we all know this. This is the probably the clearest book that makes this obvious to us, Hebrews, by Christ, by his work. Hebrews makes this explicit by telling us all the ways that Jesus is superior to um, the old mediators, the, the angels, Hebrews 1, superior to Moses, Hebrews 3, brings about a better rest than even Joshua, Hebrews 4. He's a superior priest than Aaron, Hebrews 7. He's ushered in a better covenant, Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. Think of how Hebrews 10 sums it up before giving us encouragement to hold fast to Christ and to persevere, to not go back to shadows. So let's actually get our Bibles out, and we will spend a little bit of time here in Hebrews 10. And this will uh, also show us some stuff about the Psalms as well. Hebrews 10 will be in verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Now, just to make sure we're clear on terms, we're talking about David as a type. So we talk about type and anti-type. You know, right? There's a picture, and then there's a reality. If you see a picture, it tells you some truth. It can accurately represent the reality, although not perfectly, right? There's nothing better than the reality. Or a shadow. You know, a shadow gives you some information about the subject. Like here you can see my silhouette doing crazy things on the wall. But the reality is me, myself. Same thing with, you know, once, once you have the substance, once you, like, oh, I think that's Jason, I need to go talk to him. You know, you see my shadow, and you see me, and you need to talk to me. You're not going to go back to my shadow and discuss anything with, with that, because here's the reality. This is the same thing it was with the Old Testament ordinances, like the sacrifices. They were shadows, ultimately pointing to Christ. Uh, so looking at this, yes. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, right? So that is an ordinance from Moses. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Right? So those sacrifices are pictures pointing to a greater reality. I like to give the example of you guys are planning, you know, you're planning a road trip, going to the Grand Canyon, and you see a sign that says, Grand Canyon, 200 miles away. And then whoever's driving the car slams on the brakes, pulls over and says, Grand Canyon. And, you know, he's probably some old boomer, so he gets his 
selfie stick and takes a picture and he's like, Grand Canyon, yeah, you know, post it on whatever the old people's social media is nowadays. Um, like, the kids would think that's weird because their dad's doing it. But anyone would think that's weird because that's, that's a sign. That's not the reality. You do that at the Grand Canyon. You don't do that at a sign. It, you know, keep going. That sign is pointing you in the right direction. It's giving you information that's valid and good. But it's, it's, it's the sign. Keep going. These sacrifices were pictures pointing to a greater reality. That's one of the reasons the author of Hebrews is encouraging them, don't go back to those shadows. You have Christ, the better sacrifice. Uh, looking back at verse 5, though, there in Hebrews, it reads, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then it, quote, it quotes Christ. So do you guys know which part of the New Testament that quote is from? Because right? we, have, we have the words of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There are some quotes of Christ in the Acts, right, before his ascension. I think there's one part where the apostles will say, um, remember Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. That's not recorded in the Gospels, but, you know, those are quotes of Christ. Does anyone know where this quote of Christ is from? From the Psalms. That's very interesting. Yes. Specifically, it is from Psalm 40, and it is a quote of David. David is a type of Christ. This is the point being made. David was an anointed one of God, right? He was a king. He was a Messiah, in a you know, small m sense, ultimately God promised in the Davidic covenant that the true ultimate final king reigning would come from David. David is still, though, a type nonetheless. So this brings up an important point as to how we're going to go about interpreting the Psalms. When people look at the Psalms, they will often acknowledge that there are different groupings of Psalms, right? There's the Psalms of penitence, there's some psalms of comfort. There's creation psalms. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It tells of the glories of God. There's um, acronistic psalms. You know, Psalm 119 is a classic example. Aleph, B. It goes through the Hebrew alphabet, you know, kind of like our A for Adam, B for boy, whatever. Um, there are categories of messianic psalms. Usually there's a handful of psalms in there. You'll for sure always see Psalm 2, which is talking about Christ's reign and, you know, power over his enemies. And you'll see Psalm 22 usually in there as well. That's very clearly a messianic psalm, talking about the sufferings of Christ. That's usually what people say. If you keep, go- keep going in Psalm 22, though, it talks about his work of redemption and his glory as well. It doesn't end at his sufferings. It's, it's a very triumphant psalm. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so again, we, we clearly see that those are messianic psalms. And we clearly learn that David is a king, but with God's word being on his tongue, we can also say that he is a prophet. So he is a, he is a type, he is a king, he is a prophet as well. We could say that not only because, you know, how he wrote scripture, how he prophesied, even the New Testament authors have no issue in saying that um, Peter directly calls him a prophet when referring to Psalm 2 um, in Acts. And in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, he says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels long to look into." 
So David as a prophet, even though we, we see those, I forget which, which commentator it was who says, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, it feels kind of weird sometimes because it seems like you're prying into the private conversations of a saint with God. Because some of these prayers in the Psalms are very personal, yet ultimately these are given for us to show forth the glory of God, to show forth the salvation of Christ. Also later in Colossians 3.16 we will see that the Psalms equate the words of Christ with the Psalms. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, singing Psalms. That is the equation there. On the road to Emmaus, after Jesus' glorious resurrection from the dead, he runs into two despondent disciples discussing the death of Christ. They're unsure what happened. Like We thought he was, I mean, he came to us with great signs and wonders, and we thought he was going to be the one who redeemed Israel. And eventually, Jesus reveals himself to them and declares in Luke 24, 25 through 27, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, this is 33 AD. What are all the scriptures at that time? talking about the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's the Old Testament. That, those are the scriptures we have at that time. Later on in that chapter, when Jesus appears to his disciples, when they're just kind of going back to their fisher jobs, eating fish, he joins them, enjoying fish in the resurrected body. Uh, Luke 24, 44 through 47, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when he's talking about those, he's not just talking about the Psalms. It's just a category really filling in all the poetic books, if you will. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Again, that covers the whole litany, all of the Old Testament. Jesus goes on saying, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All that info, which we typically think is what we get from the Gospels, the Gospel proper itself is there contained in the Old Testament, speaking of Christ and his glory, including the Psalms. The Psalms are replete with these types of doctrines. They are the most quoted book in the New Testament. And now that the apostles have learned this, they attribute psalms to Christ. You'll see this multiple times in Acts 2. And Hebrews 10, as we read, they say, here's what Christ said, and it's a quote from David. As one commentator summed this up, he said, the entire collection is known as the Psalms of David. And so according to the principle of typology, the entire collection belongs to Christ because David is his prophetic name. So what does he mean when he says that? David is his, you know, that is the Messiah's or Jesus' prophetic name. That was another one. As I was reading that, I was like, what is he talking about there? Consider these four different verses from three different prophets, which come after the time of David. So at this time, David is buried. His body, if you will, is in Sheol, right? His body has been left in the grave. Jeremiah 30, verse 9, reads, But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. This is speaking of a Davidic king, a king from the line of David. Again, the promise in that Davidic covenant, which is 
going to be really important for our interpretation of the Psalms. It's ultimately talking about the Messiah, but it doesn't say everything I said. It just says they're looking for David. David's going to be their king. David is in the ground, though. Ezekiel 33, 23-24 read, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And then just three chapters later in Ezekiel 37, 24, again, Ezekiel says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Jesus makes it very clear in John 10, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So it is Jesus who leads us beside the still water, who restores our soul. The good shepherd, Jesus says, lays down his life for the sheep. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And last verse, kind of talking about David as the name of Christ. Hosea 3.5 reads, Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Again, the entire collection is known as a Psalm of David. And so according to the principle of typology, the entire collection belongs to Christ because David is his prophetic name. Our Lord lived in the Psalms. He quoted them. He sang them. Um, and even, even on the cross, four of the last seven words or sayings of Christ on the cross are either direct quotes or fulfillments in the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, I thirst, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Christ is all throughout the Psalms, and so I pray as we, as we go through the Psalms that we will clearly see that, um, just like the apostles did. The apostles preached it. Uh, the prophets of the Old Testament testified to that fact. Christ is all throughout it. Even the ancient church understood this and thus sung psalms. And when they sung them, they could, in good conscience, say, we're singing these to Christ. They are about Christ. A whole host of witnesses could be called upon this. And at this point, I was trying not to nerd out in church history. I did. I'm only going to bring you a very small sampling of it. Tertullian, born around A.D. 150, died A.D. 220, expresses this himself by saying, quote, that David, of whom I've been speaking, sings among us Christ, by whom Christ himself has sung or celebrated himself. They're referring to the times Christ is singing the Psalms about himself. And again, he says, but even almost all the Psalms exhibit the person of Christ. I really appreciate how Andrew Bonar puts it in his commentary on the Psalms. His commentary is titled, Christ and His Church in the Book of Psalms. I think it was about 10 plus years ago, I remember going to a... Texas Area Reform Baptist Association message, and one of the booksellers there, Mike, Mike Gadock, I think was his name, he had all these books, a lot of cool old nerdy books, and I was just, it was like a feast. I didn't have enough money to buy them all. But one, one I picked up that was really weird to me, of course at the time, like most Christians, I already loved the Psalms, but this, the title said, Christ and His Church in the Book of Psalms? I'm just like, wait, what? Christ and His Church in the Book of Psalms? Like, the ch word church is in the Old Testament, and okay, maybe you're talking about the Messiah, but this whole book, I mean, it's a pretty fat, little chunky book. Uh, like, what is this guy talking about? Um, I'll just let him explain it himself. He says, quote, 
Now in the early ages, men full of the thoughts of Christ could never read the Psalms without being reminded of their Lord. They probably had no system or fixed theory as to all the Psalms referring to Christ. Kind of like I just talked about, you know, the, according to typology, David and Christ. Um, they probably had no, no fixed system like that as formal as we might talk about it today. Um, but still, unthinkingly, we might say they found their thoughts wandering to their Lord. As the one person in whom these breathings, these praises, these desires, these hopes, these deep feelings um, found their only true and full realization. Hence, Augustine, when preaching through Psalm 58, says to his hearers, as he expounded to them uh, this book, that, quote, the voice of Christ in his church was well nigh the only voice to be heard in the Psalms. And on another occasion, in Psalm 43, he says, quote, everywhere, dis- dif- everywhere diffused throughout is that man whose head is above and whose members are below. We ought to recognize his voice in all the psalms. And then at this point, he goes in and each psalm, he gives you a, a, kind of a collection throughout church history and even through modern guys. I think this was written around 1850-something, last, last I saw the date from what I recall. Um, just people's interpretation and seeing Christ throughout the psalms. It's a really edifying book. The actual dealing with each individual psalm isn't very long, actually, uh, but still it's I hope to bring some of that out as we go through this. But anyways, back to our Matthew Henry quote, which was just talking about the author, but really has led me to such a feast of seeing Christ throughout all the scriptures, but especially in the Psalms. He says, David himself, whose genius lay towards poetry and music, and who was raised up, qualified and animated for the establishing of the ordinance of singing Psalms in the church of God as Moses and Aaron were in their day for the setting of ordinances of sacrifices. Theirs is superseded, but his remains, and will to the end of time, when it shall be swallowed up in the song of eternity. And of course, this begs the question, so are we to this day to sing songs? Two most quoted New Testament passages regarding this, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, and then Paul goes on to kind of explain what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and, and even how, even the attitude of doing it. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Okay, how? singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So again, even as Christ was quoted in Psalm 40 saying, sacrifices and offerings, not your ultimate desire, right? He's not looking for the outside. He's always looking at the heart, even in in the Old Testament economy as well. Um, Ultimately, singing psalms is one of the one another's of Scripture. There's 50-plus times in the New Testament we are given one another's. This is church life stuff, love one another. Forgive one another. Uh, be patient with one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. One of those one another's is letting the word of Christ dwell in you by way of singing psalms. And this was an interesting thing that was a different paradigm when I remember being taught these verses early in my Christian life. Because I had grown up in a word of faith church and pretty standard evangelicalism. It's very much turn down the lights, 
close your eyes, you kind of get into your own worship bubble. It's just you and God. You know, this is like a holy time, just you and God, even though you're there with the whole church. Contrarily in, in the, you know, being alone with God is a good thing. There's plenty of times the Bible encourages that. But in corporate worship, you are there with the people. And to fulfill these one another's, you are, you know, there's a reason we don't turn down the lights and you're looking at words and singing. Um, it is one of the one another's. It's one of the ways we teach and admonish one another. I can remember times um, singing hymns and psalms together in church and, and kind of looking around at people that I know, you know, I, I know a line's coming up that could be kind of tough. You know, this might often happen, as great is thy faithfulness, or, or some line, you know, the Lord gives and takes away after something devastating happens to some family. And I will see that family, you know, through tears sometimes, sing, and it is a great admonishment to me, like, oh, Lord, help my own belief. Like, you are good even in these hard times. You know, there, there is a ministry there even in seeing that. In the same way, the sacraments, you know, these are pictures. Look and see these things, you know, um, see your Savior in that. We have that even in singing. I actually asked Pastor Ryan, I go, I go just, he's like, I think I know why, but can you give me a reason as to why, you know, you look around every now and then when you're, when you're singing psalms and, and leading us in worship? He goes, well, you know, I'm leading, so, you know, I've been up here leading before. You make sure you're at the right page, that everyone's not giving quizzical looks like, oh, wait, I didn't mean Psalm 23, I meant Psalm 32. The numbers got reversed. You know, you look for that, you're directing, but sometimes you're looking up because he says, you know, you are, you are preaching to one another, you are teaching one another even in these things. You know, I'm not telling you to do a full 360, turn around and stare at your, at your neighbor, but every now and then, you know, lift your eyes. You know, we are not Primarily, we are singing to God. You know, worship is both vertical, but there is a horizontal element where we're teaching you know, our children, those around us, and we can be an encouragement with that. We are at 2.44. Let's stop there. Um, next, we're going to get into, again, the structure of the Psalms. What do the Psalms contain in different categories? We'll save that for next time, and my aim will be to preach through Psalms 1 and 2 together as throughout church history, a lot of people see this as really the preface proper to the Psalms or kind of the, these two arches, these two great pillars that hold up the rest of the Psalms. It's kind of our entry to the Psalms. So understanding Psalm 1 and 2 together, is going to be really important. Um, but for now, let's, I, again, I want to give some kind of practical aids, some help on things we do every week. You know, we sing from the Psalter every week. So go ahead and grab a Psalter. They should already be out. Uh, if everyone can have one. I'm not going to make you sing. Don't worry. But there is this really cool, well, I guess kind of two things I want to bring out. A Psalter is a translation, is a proper translation of God's Word. So the teams behind this, the committee teams, especially like this specific Psalter, uh, it's, uh, the UP, I forget, the United Reformed Churches of blah, 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 and the OPC are behind them. They have a committee, just as if they started a committee, you know, when the ESV was being written. They have a committee. They have Hebrew scholars. They have translators. It goes through the same process, except it's only for the Psalms, because it's a Psalter, the Psalm parts, that is. And it is obviously given for the purpose of not just merely translating it into English, but translating it into English so that it could easily be sung, so it's metered. So, and I was telling my wife that she's like, oh, I didn't know that. And really, I only kind of learned about this maybe seven, eight years ago. Like, oh, these are proper translations of the scriptures in meter. So go ahead and turn to Psalm. Like, let's just, just show you an example. Psalm 1b, for example. 
And if you just open, let me just open to the psalm, and I'll just kind of, we'll just do some comparison. You can kind of, you can kind of see. So words are rearranged in a way so that we can easily sing it, you know, certain vowels and this or that. Psalm 1. My page is stuck. So Psalm 1, then I'm reading from the ESV, an English translation. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, a lot of the purpose behind Psalters translated into a meter, is that, well, these are originally meant to be sung, so let's sing them in our native tongue. You see this in Psalm 1b. How blessed is the man who does not walk where wicked men would guide his feet, who stand not in the sinner's way, nor sit upon the scorner's seat. See, that, that rhymes. It flows very well. It's easy to memorize like that. If you, if you look really closely at that psalm, so see how you have verse 1, 2, and 3, but then you also have Bible verses in there. So, in that first stanza, it's a, little, it's a little tiny one. You know, you look at the next line, it's verse 3. And if I go to verse 3 of the ESV, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water, for he is like a growing tree which planted by a flowing stream, and on and on it goes. So anytime you see those little tiny verse markers in there, they're telling you we had the Hebrew text, we had a translation team, this is a proper translation of the Bible. It's metered. There are other times that we have paraphrases as well. What if the difference between a paraphrase and a translation, in a paraphrase, it is taking kind of what you already have translated into English and explaining some things. So when I was walking through Hebrews 10, there was times I was paraphrasing it because I was explaining some parts of it. Uh, one example of that that you could see, let me actually get to my notes, so... Because our Psalter does have some paraphrases as well. It always has at least one proper translation. And so if it does have a paraphrase, it has both. So one example of that is, turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, you'll see what I'm talking about here. As the deer pants for the waters, pants my soul for you, O God. Turn to Psalm, or turn to, in the Psalter 42b, here you can see it's still, there's still verses in it. This is a newer translation. You can see all the, at the bottom. As pants the deer for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. 42C, notice that there's not little verse numbers on each of those verses. You guys see that little difference there? That is a paraphrase. It even said, well, at the bottom of this one, it says it's partial. So it's not trying to give you the whole psalm. I think it does like verses one through four, and then it goes to the ending, kind of that, you know, why art thou downcast, O my soul? hope in God. But there'll be other times, um, a mighty fortress. So that's Psalm 46. Look at Psalm 46a. It has little tiny verse numbers. This is a, you know, taken from the Hebrew, translated to this meter. God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present aid. And therefore, though the earth gives way, we will not be afraid, right? It's metered. It's really good. 40, turn the page. 46b does the same thing. Here you can see that's from an older 1912 Psalter. But then look at 46C. This is a paraphrase. This was Luther's version. It was, it's, it's, it's a more loose translation. You know, theologically great stuff, still very edifying. I love to sing this in church. This is the one that goes to the tune, A Mighty Fortress. 
God is our refuge and our strength, and on and on it goes. But it's paraphrased so that it could fit that tone. So just kind of be aware as, you know, when we turn to the Psalter, when we're in the Psalm specifically, be like, oh, I am, I am actually singing the word of God. I, to me, that's a really cool thing. Because one thing that does is connect us, again, to all the saints throughout time. This is, you know, as great as some of these great hymns are, and I'm not any, any way trying to diss them, um, King David didn't sing them. You know, uh, you know, some of the, like Psalm 90, Moses sang that. Like, that's, that's crazy that we today as a people sing, sing a song 3,000 plus years old that the church in Israel, that with Moses sang. It's one of those things that really, in my mind, helps me connect to the universal church, be reminded of that, that mystical, sweet union we have with all the saints, not just those living we see present, but all those that have gone in time past. So I have a lot more kind of hints or pro tips I'll give on the Trinity Psalter. Uh, we'll get to those as time allows. But for now, let me close with a quote from Luther. It's always fun to quote Luther. As early as 1517, he began, you know, that was the time of the spark of the Reformation. He began to quote, to translate the Psalms. Eventually, by 1523 to 24, he finishes the Psalms. And this is his little intro on it. This is my prayer for us as well. He says this, The Psalter ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom that it might well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything in the entire Bible. Hence it is that the Psalter is the book of all saints, and everyone, in whatever situation he may be, finds in that situation psalms and words that fit his ease, that suit him as if they were put there just for his sake, so that he could not put it better himself or find a wish for anything better. To this may God the Father of all grace and mercy help us, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be praise and thanks, honor and glory for this German Psalter, and for all his innumerable and unspeakable blessings to all eternity. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we do come to you thanking you that you are our God and Father of all grace and mercy. We do pray that you would help us in our next hour to worship you in spirit and in truth and to be encouraged as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to you and to one another, God. Please edify us, please bless us. To you be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.